Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss what leadership looks like in the modern insurance business. We talk to insure tech leaders and founders, innovators and change agents from the insurance industry. We also talk to thought leaders from outside the industry, such as organizational psychologists, performance coaches and investment professionals. Anyone who can add value to the conversation on how to lead insurance businesses of the future. Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. Uh, this is Alex Bond. Um, this was a fantastic podcast. I was joined by Taylor Perkins of Slope Software. Taylor is a CTO. Um, we've not had enough CTOs on the podcast, so we can really get into the nuts and bolts of the technology stack. Um, but also he was working for Slope provides software to the life insurance industry. And we haven't had enough um, life insurance um, innovators on the podcast. So it's great to have that. You know, life insurance is, is, is a business which when it looks at technology, it thinks in decades and not years. And how do you make it as a startup in that environment? Um, we also talk about these huge scale life insurance companies. Are they too profitable to change? That's something we've talked about a few times on the podcast before, but certainly in a segment where profitability is very strong, is change a factor? And then one question I really wanted to ask of, of uh, Taylor. Taylor is a technologist. He works with actuaries, but he's not an actuary. So he can give me a balanced view to this question, which was, does advanced risk modeling and risk modeling software potentially make the skills today of actuaries obsolete? Now, purposely pushing some buttons there, but really interested to see what Taylor had to say. This is a fantastic podcast. I really enjoyed it. So this is the Leadership and Insurance podcast with Taylor Perkins. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky to be joined by Taylor Perkins of Slope Software. Taylor, how are you? Doing great. How about yourself? Yeah, no, very good. Very good. I'm actually bathed in natural sunlight for once, which is a very rare thing in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, um, it's, it's quite exciting to sort of be side lit um, from, from, from a window angle. But, um, you know, um, welcome to the podcast and thank you for taking the time. It's been a, it's been a little while coming, this one. We've been, we've been trying to get this one to go and I've been looking forward to it. But um, before I, I make a hash of introducing Slope Software, perhaps you'd be kind enough to introduce what it is you guys do. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I'm Taylor Perkins, CTO and co-founder of, of Slope Software. Uh, we were founded back in 2016, uh, and we offer what's called an actuarial modeling platform, um, which, you know, the, the basic idea or the value proposition here is that it helps insurance companies uh, understand and quantify their risk so that they can make better decisions about their business. Um, and this can be a very difficult thing for particularly long tail insurance contracts that take a long time. So, you know, making a mistake uh, now could have an impact for 30 years. Um, so it's uh, it's a very important market, and that's why um, you know we market specifically to actuaries who are sort of the experts in the industry um, and uh, support uh, these processes within insurance companies. Mm -hmm. uh, so we we were founded in uh, 2016. Uh, we went through the MetLife Digital Accelerator powered by TechStars in 2019, uh, and then we raised a seed round from Co-founders Capital uh, in January of 2020. Um, and we are just about to close uh, another round, about $2 million uh, in the next couple of weeks. So by the time this podcast is out, we'll, awesome. we'll, that'll be announced. 
or the time it'll be out, there'll be money in the bank. That'd be that'd be good. That's right. So, um, so that's quite interesting. The kind of gestation period of, of the business, and I sort of wanted to go back on that actually. Um, so you founded in 2016, but obviously going through textiles 2019, raising some money in 2020. Um, is that because you managed to get revenue in the door beforehand? Have you been bootstrapping to that point? Um, yeah, just interested to know the kind of, you know, the gap between inception and, and, and raising money. Um, was that a sort of decision that you made um, at the outset or was it more kind of you needed to get to a point where you could raise money and you needed, you know, some revenue in the door first? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So there's there's sort of a couple of reasons <laughs> why um, we were almost sort of incubating for, for a couple of years. Um, one is we knew that in order to approach this market, we needed to already have a deep product when we came to market. So uh, you'll see it a lot of times in startup world that you know companies will start on an idea and raise money and then start building their product. Um, we couldn't do that. There's There was just no way that we could enter the market with with no product or very little product. Um, so we actually worked nights and weekends for two and a half years before we finally quit our jobs to go full time. So at that point, we had already had a pretty uh, reasonably deep product at that point. Um, we then actually, we raised a friends and family round uh, to, to get us through uh, and we supplemented with some consulting income. So we kind of bootstrapped originally. Uh, and then we really feel like we officially launched the product in uh, early 2019. Uh, and that's really when we started to sign on customers and really see some traction. Uh, and that traction is then what got us into the Techstars program. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, we're continuing to grow today and uh, the product gets deeper and deeper. But, you know, again, I think the main reason was just knowing how much of a product we needed to have initially in order to go to market at all. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really interesting. And I remember that's something we touched on when we, we had a previous call was that, you know, and I wanted to ask you this and, and, you know, how do you, how do you do, not how do you, what are the kind of unique challenges for you guys? Because you're dealing with an industry, because it's, it's specific for life, um, uh, actuarial modeling, is that, is that correct? Or is it broader than that? Yeah, so our initial target market is the life, annuity, and pension spaces. Right. Um, so all sort of long duration contracts. Right. Um, and that's mostly because they're all modeled pretty similarly. Yeah. Um, we can also do long duration corporate modeling and things like that. Um, that's our initial focus, although we've built the platform to be able to support um, the other lines of business in the future. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it definitely presents some interesting um unique problems, uh, being that these people think in decades, yeah. uh, you know, a life insurance contract is a, is a 30 year contract potentially. Um, and, and so it becomes, there's a couple of problems with that, right? One is, um, getting people to move technologies can be difficult because they're thinking in longer term. Um, the other difficulty is, uh, actually demonstrating the ROI of a platform like this. So if, if we tell, um, uh, insurance companies, look, you can, better price your products with our, uh, with our platform. And the, the issue is that may take 10 or 20 years for them to realize. Uh, and so, you know, being a, a little bit newer in the space, you know, we've been around for five years. So, you know, even if we had somebody that started right away, uh, they may, may still not be seeing the ROI uh, on our platform yet. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a lot of other demonstrable ROIs in terms of process improvement and um, and things like that. Um, and just being able to get sort of an all-in-one platform so that 
the, the manual labor is reduced uh, for actuaries, which is very demonstrable on its own. But the, the harder one is to explain how that improves the business in the long term, because it's, it's just hard to demonstrate that in, until 30 years have passed. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Because um, um, your co-founder is uh, an actuary, isn't he? Is it Andy? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, how do you... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I've got to go back to it as well, which I let sl- slide and was like, so you spent evenings and weekends working on an actuarial modeling software. Um. <laughs> yeah, it takes a certain kind of certain kind of drive, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. But how did you do you guys know each other personally from b- before? Or how, did, how did you how did that come about that team? Yeah, actually. Uh, so this is this is an interesting one. So he is my former brother in law. Uh, and so we knew each other. Uh, I've known him since high school. Uh-huh. Um, and so we've known each other a long time. And the company was founded uh, via text message. He, <laughs> he sent me a text message one day, and I actually have the original one uh, <laughs> saved. Uh, and it, it's, he said, hey, I have this crazy idea. Uh, it's grown out of frustration with work. Uh, I basically, I keep waiting for better software to come along mm-hmm. and it hasn't. Uh, and it, and this market is just very terrible. Uh, what do you think about building something better? Yeah. Um, and I think I had a one word response that said, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so we, uh, we met, um, you know, I took a week off of work and we met and sort of hashed out ideas for the company and, mm-hmm. um, we're in, we're in agreement and started working on it um, in actually late 2015 before we incorporated. So yeah, it's, it's I think it's always just the best genesis of, it, of you know solve a problem that you can see and you keep waiting for the solution. It's not there. And um, uh, we had the guys from Hyper Exponential on here um, in the UK, and and they've got the this natural modeling platform. And um, yep, I'm familiar with them. Yeah, yeah, same, same, same story, right? They're just like can't wait for someone to build better software. It wasn't coming, so we had to go and build it ourselves. Um, it seems the best solution. But you, but your background's not in the insurance industry per se, is it? You, you're from outside. Um, uh, is that fair? Um, yeah, that's fair. I have a little bit of insurance um, industry early on my in my career. Uh, I helped build things out for health insurance market, so the the sort of sales process. Um, and I had a lot of involvement when they were implementing healthcare.gov. Uh, saw the integrations with uh, health insurance providers, mm-hmm. uh, but life insurance is is a little different, um, and so that that space is um, is interesting. Hmm. I, I, the reason I kind of wanted to kind of highlight your external experience outside the insurance industry was just to, just to talk about um, the dreaded word innovation. Um, and and really, what I want to talk about is you know tech stacks and tech innovation and, and you know because you'll have a broader worldview um we people love talking about innovation and insurance and i think a lot of the time personally this is personally my view and it's i don't want to shape any any part of the conversation but it's i see a lot more adoption than true innovation you know there's things that have worked in other industries and we're bringing them in and that, and that is a form of innovation that's fine but um is do you think that's accurate in your view or are we just a, or, or is that un, that might be unfair as well because it might be most industries <laughs> just adopt new things but um i don't know i wanted to get your take on kind of what you see as genuine innovation and, and if you see much of it in the insurance industry yeah, that's uh, that's a really interesting question. So I, I I guess my initial answer would be it depends where you look in yeah. the industry. So um, there's certainly you know the insurance industry is is quite large, and so depending on 
different aspects, whether or not it's consumer facing products or mm -hmm. more B2B type products, I think you see sort of different levels of, of innovation versus adoption. Mm -hmm. For example, I think we're seeing a lot of insure tech startups being very successful right now on the consumer side that are really modernizing, you know, they're bringing new types of insurance to the market or they're bringing it using, you know, new technology platforms. Um, and, and that is gaining a lot of traction. I mean, if you think of companies like, you know, just to name a few, Lemonade, Kin, Bestow, Ladder Life, you probably just saw in the news, Ethos Life just raised $200 million. Yeah. Um, so, that, you know, they're, do they're doing great. And even Tesla now is getting into the auto, uh, uh, auto insurance space mm -hmm. and just started hiring actuaries as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a lot of innovation going on that side and, you and uh, just mostly from a technology perspective. On the B2B side, I think it depends a little bit where you look. Um, in general, we I feel like we're seeing more innovation on the PNC side, um, and I think the part of the reason for that is you know PNC contracts are much shorter, and so they can iterate on things uh, and try new technologies without sort of this long tail risk factor, right? Sure. Um, and so, um, you know, I think compared to a company like us, where we're coming in and uh, essentially unseating these large incumbents that have been around since the eighties. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's, it's, a, there's a little bit more friction up front, but I think when people see the value, I mean, that's how long it's been since there's been real innovation uh, on our side of the house. Uh, and, and it's, it's time, right. It's pretty easy to, to show the, um, the opportunity there, uh, when people see the modern technology and, and what it can do. Mm. Um, one other comment on, on I'll say on in, on the innovation in the insurance industry is I think a lot of insurance companies are trying to innovate and they're even creating whole innovation teams. Uh, like we worked with the innovation team at MetLife, for example, when we went through the, the accelerator there. Um, and I think you know in in my experience, having talked with some of these teams across various organizations, um, you know I think the people that are in those departments are really excited about innovation. Um, but a lot of the times, what we see in practice is they get a little bit hamstrung or handcuffed a little bit in, in terms of what they can actually accomplish within the organization, and they're doing a little bit more of trying to push POCs and pilots on other parts of the business, mm -hmm. uh, and it's less driven from those business units themselves, which has, you know, mixed, uh, mixed results, I would say. Mm. Uh. <laughs> I, I think you've touched on two really interesting points there, actually. There's one, um, I give myself a smack on the wrist for keeping, keep doing this thing of going insurance and then trying to make a statement across the whole industry, which is, of course, impossible because it's so broad. But, right, right. you know, I think you made a really interesting point about the life cycle of the insurance contracts and, and, and it sort of, it follows, doesn't it, that the consumer lifecycle insurance contracts, um, particularly on kind of personal lines, is 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 very short. PNC is a little bit longer. Things like life, are obviously, so much longer. And that and and the innovation would follow that because you can um, you can iterate as fast as you can issue kind of new contracts, essentially, because um, you don't have to dis disrupt something which already exists. So, yeah, uh, absolutely echoes kind of what I'm seeing. Um, and um, yeah, the second point, the innovation teams, I was having this conversation with a client recently and just saying that, um, yeah, they can be quite toothless and it's, and it's no fault of the people within them. The people within them are, are, are great. And, and a, lot, a lot of the time we're hiring the right people, um, but there seems, seems to be so many inherent problems. Either they don't have any budget to do anything, um, they, they sort of have to operate over the, out of their own silos, or they have to convince kind of like, 
P&L heads to kind of put some money in the pot to kind of drive um, innovation. And yeah, it doesn't have the necessarily buy-in from the teams or business units because they're, it's a sort of outside um, team that has, you know, it's not connected to the claims team or the underwriting team or the actuarial team. So uh, they're sort of trying to sort of get these POCs going, but they don't have the kind of groundswell of support. Um, and we were sort of talking about, you know, the juxtaposition of that, because if you if you flipped it and said, okay, let's take someone from each business unit to come and sit in the innovation team, um, you might not have the right people in the room. You might have the supporters there, um, but then you don't have that kind of maybe that innovative mindset or external view to sort of bring in that new technology mind. So um, it's not an easy challenge at all. Um, yeah, ab- absolutely. And <laughs> I mean, it's certainly a difficult problem to solve and I don't, I, I can't claim to know what the right answer is, um, <laughs> but I, I think the, the issue in, at least in my uh, view is that there has to be buy-in across the whole organization. Sure. So it's one thing to even give an innovation team budget and say, Hey, go do pilots with startups. Um, and that's, that's great. But at the end of the day, that pilot's going to end. Uh, and if the startup has shown value, then having a process in place to transition from a pilot to a full MSA mm-hmm. uh, so that, 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 that startup technology can actually be implemented in the organization. And I think there's a little bit of a gap there oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's a difficult problem to solve, right? Because these are very large organizations. Yeah. And yeah. Um, you know, I think getting that sort of innovation initiative to be company-wide can be difficult. Mm. And I hear so many horror stories as well, particularly with smaller startups. You know, you don't have infinite resources and infinite time and, and, you know, and cash. And one of the things that you burn through is your time. And, you know, you're going through these pilots or proof of concepts. And, and what the, the nightmare that I keep feeling feeds into this conversation, which is they'll do the pilot and the pilot will deliver well against the metrics which were discussed at the outset. Yet that it doesn't get picked up and it doesn't get get utilized and then you kind of think not what was the point because it's kind of all valuable you can prove that oh we took on this project we ran this data and we got the result but um it seems a bit uh disingenuous sometimes to even start these processes because the support simply isn't there to implement it um and and absolutely i make no claim to know what to do it it seems to be about the leadership of those organizations and how invested they are in kind of making changes. And, and, and if it comes top down and really from the C-suite, then pr- perhaps it gets done. But um, I suppose I, I won't step outside of my purview and try and solve uh, problems that I don't know how to solve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, from a, from a startup perspective as well, um, this is a dangerous place to be. And uh, it's something that, you, you know, as a startup founder, we're, we're keenly aware of, uh, you know, we, um, we can't be doing pilots that lead nowhere over and over yeah. again because then we're not continuing to build out our product and we're not providing recurring value to our customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, we've been fortunate that we've been able to manage that pretty well so far. So, you know, we have lots of paying customers and that helps, uh, you know, drive our revenue and development and that sort of thing um, so that we can afford to do pilots. Um, and then, you know, keeping those pilots sort of scoped so that they're not dragging on for, you know, years <laughs> yeah. is also important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, going, going to the sort of the size of um, 
No, not the size. No, let's bring that back. You know, you, you, you come from outside the industry, relatively speaking, um, sort of fresh eyes on it. Um, I wanted to ask you what surprised you most about insurance that you didn't know on the way in. What was the, was there anything that you just, yeah, took, took you by surprise? Yeah. So from a, from a technology standpoint, I would say not so much. Um, there are, I think being so involved in um, the actuarial side of the house has given me some interesting insights into the way insurance companies operate that I might not have had before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, from a, from an industry outsider perspective, it can be a, a little bit jarring sometimes to see how certain things operate. And I'll give you an example. So one is um, there are sort of entire products in the insurance industry that depend really heavily on the treasury rates, the US treasury rates. And if those are higher, those products get a lot of attention uh, within the organization. But if the treasury rates fall really low, uh, insurance companies will basically completely ignore entire uh, asset classes and things like that uh, and stop working on uh, working on that entirely. And that can have sort of ripple effects across the whole organization. Mm-hmm. So you can see uh, suddenly at the sort of the drop of the hat, so to speak, they'll suddenly pivot and uh, stop focusing completely on that product and start focusing on other products, which yeah. is really interesting to have something that's so heavily tied to certain market trends and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I wonder a little bit, I guess, if the Federal Reserve thinks about these things <laughs> when yeah, yeah, they, yeah. I, I'm sure they do. Uh, yeah. But, you know, these are, the, these are the sorts of industries that get heavily affected by those changes in the market, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think, I think people try and avoid about thinking about insurance. Uh, <laughs> leave Fair to, enough. They leave it to people like us to worry about too much. That's um, right. I, um, yeah, I also wanted to get your view on, on, on kind of like, I, I, I've got this... I've got this thought process about the larger insurance carriers and, you know, there's so many you could name that are 200 years old or, you know, you know, over at least over a hundred years old, they've been around forever. They've done this and, and they've reached such scale. Um, is there an incentive to, for a business to change if it's, you know, if they're incredibly profitable anyway? Um, I don't know. Do, 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 do you feel some of that from even outside of the insurance industry? But, but because you're trying to bring about change with the, your technology, you're trying to bring something in that hasn't changed in the 80s. Do you think that ever comes into it? Or, or is, it, is that just one factor of which there are probably many greater factors? Sure, yeah. Um, I, I do think that that can happen in the insurance industry. And, and I think maybe it does happen sometimes. Um, I guess I would, I would warn insurance companies that that's a very dangerous mindset to get in, especially, you know, insurance can be a very profitable uh, market. However, the, the margins are actually pretty low. Sure. So they're, they're making a large amount of revenue on very small margins, right? So there's a lot of uh, money moving around, <laughs> yeah. uh, but the, you know, the, what they're actually taking off the top is is quite small uh, mm-hmm. with regards to the bigger picture. So, you know, it's a dangerous mindset to be like, oh, we're super pro- profitable, so we don't need to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if that starts to trend in the wrong direction, uh, it things can pretty quickly get out of control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you you've seen some of this kind of um, even with um, playing around with new uh, new products and things. Uh, you know, the, uh, an abundance of overconfidence or, or something like that, where, for example, um, when long-term care products started to come out for the first time, uh, it's my understanding that 
uh, a lot of these ended up tanking and costing these companies a lot of money because they weren't modeled properly and they made some assumptions that were wrong. And mm-hmm. uh, it's gotten a lot better since then. Um, but a lot of these initial products that rolled out ended up um, costing companies quite a bit of money. And, and that's a great example of where if you make one little mistake, mm-hmm. um, it, can, it can have a ripple effect across the organization. And so I think you know, that mistake could be doing nothing, right? And um, if you're not staying up to date with the technology and, and it doesn't have to be this grand uh, transition from, uh, you know, older technology to new technology, um, companies can take incremental approaches to this. And, and I'm of the opinion that that's the way it ought to be done or that's the correct way to do it so that you're not trying to do some huge lift every 10 years, but rather uh, be constantly thinking about these things and how can we make small updates here and there to, to stay on top of the technology and the trends in the industry and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to some extent, I think a lot of companies do okay at that. Um, on the technology side, from, from my perspective, I think is where it tends to be lacking for the most part. Yeah, I, I sort of see a trend of, you know, trying to paper over cracks and um, I, I, I'd made an observation and, and, and this is in no means a, a disrespect or, or kind of a negative comment towards tech teams within insurance companies because, again, that's a huge sweeping statement. And secondly, um, I just think they do different things. You know, most of the big incumbents, their tech teams are there as kind of maintenance rather than development and furtherment of tech. Um, and that's just because they're trying to fix and deal with the stack that they've been <laughs> left with. Um but therefore, that means that you've got different skill sets in those teams than you necessarily need for building kind of future tech or, or at least kind of keeping on the cusp of um, uh, things. Do you, do, you, do you think that's um, fair? And, um, and do you, you know, from a tech kind of point of view, from a CTO point of view, um, if, do you think insurance maybe needs to do something to kind of attract new talent uh, or develop new talent uh, because the skill sets don't seem to match? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think um, this is an area where a lot of the, the previous areas that we've already discussed around innovation can, can really help. Mm-hmm. So if you're really fostering uh, or cultivating innovation in the industry, um, I think that alone can attract the right talent. Because if you look at the startups in the insure tech space, they're actually, they've been very successful at recruiting good talent. Yeah. Uh, even us, um, which I will put a shameless plug in, we're hiring right now. So <laughs> anybody <laughs> I, listening? I uh, I yeah, love yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely go to slopesoftware.com and check out, uh, check out our careers page. Uh, but yes, yeah, you know, I, I think that we're seeing that startups are are able to recruit and and it has less to do with the fact that they're, in the insurance industry and more to do with the fact that they're solving interesting problems. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's really, there are a lot of interesting problems to solve in the insurance space, way more than I thought before I actually entered it myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, if, if you like to solve interesting problems um, and you sort of uh, cultivate that, you know, I think you can recruit good people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's, I think, going to be key going forward to sort of avoid that mindset where you're just getting people to maintain your, your old, uh, your old software and really recruiting people that are excited to solve new problems. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think that's what I see generally, even outside of kind of tech uh, recruiting, um, you know, the people I get talking to me that want jobs in insure tech is completely varied, you know, and, and I do a lot of my work where I bring the kind of insurance professionals into the tech organization. Um, and, and it's kind of left me, 
you know, slightly cynical because I think it, <laughs> it, it is just essentially, you know, it, it's it's seen as more exciting. And I think that's where maybe incumbent carriers have a, a bit of a challenge is to kind of make sure that they're shouting about the interesting work they're doing. Um, because look, it's easier to... It's easier probably to kind of make an impact on growing that margin that we talked about that was quite narrow on their profits than it is to kind of get a new startup and make it something. Yeah, it's much easier to add 2% on a, you know, billion dollar balance sheet than it is to kind of like create a billion dollar company. And but the journey and, and the story you're telling and, and, and being a recruitment professional, I, I tell, talk to people all the time. All I do is tell stories about why you should go and work for company A over company B. Um, and the incumbents just have to do a slightly better job of telling their story. Um, whereas I think it's very easy to be a startup and kind of go, you know, we're a startup and all the kind of um, positive, ex, you know, excitement that goes with that. Um, you know, it's like people used to just be business owners, but everyone's an entrepreneur now. You know, it's not, you're not, <laughs> it's just, it's just repackaged and it's a bit more exciting um, because there's so many challenges to sort of, go after as you rightly say um I, I wanted to talk specifically about your software and what it does so um you kind of i think you're going to answer this because you've got i realize there's a good tagline on your website but i've asked the question as i've written it anyway but um does kind of advanced modeling kind of risk making the current skills of actuaries obsolete um I've, I've, I know I've backpedaled from saying, does it make risk making actuaries obsolete? Because I think that's a bit kind of abrasive. But do you think it changes? Uh, does it risk making some of the actuarial skills obsolete as we get better with kind of modeling technology? Yeah, so this is actually a really interesting question. And we actually get asked this a lot by people that are not in the industry. Mm -hmm. uh, and so usually it's like, well, our actuary is even going to exist in 10 years. I, we get asked that all the time, right? Like, yeah. does your software replace actuaries and, and this sort of thing? And I think that the, um, the mindset around that is really taking for granted the expertise that actuaries have. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think the best way to explain this is to, is to talk about how hard it is to become an actuary. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, for example, you, you know, like these people have very, very deep industry knowledge. I mean, they've basically dedicated their lives to be insurance experts. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times they also have a specialization. So they might be life insurance experts or PNC yeah. insurance experts. Um, and if you, to put this in perspective, uh, on average, uh, and you can find these numbers, it takes about seven to 10 years to become a fully credentialed actuary, which is uh, something like the Fellow of Society of Actuaries, which is the, um, the society in the US. Mm -hmm. um, and that is uh, roughly about 20,000 hours of work to, to do that. Uh, and I always like to reference Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers book in this because he says it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert in something. Yeah. And so on average, it takes an actuary 20,000 hours <laughs> to become an expert in their field. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, these are experts among experts, right? And that is a, an expertise that goes beyond just math. Uh, you know, these people are not just human calculators. They really know how to critically think about insurance and, and make good decisions. And um, they understand all of the ins and outs. And that's why they can model this stuff really accurately. Um, and so, you know, I think that while modeling technology is advancing, it's going to be a long way off before uh, this role can be completely eliminated. Mm. Now, 
that being said, I think one of the challenges that this new technology does present is a lot of the types of modeling, especially around ML and AI, those sorts of modeling, the types of things that they're doing right now are a lot of times replacing the types of things that a junior level actuary would do. Oh. And if you're eliminating the things that the junior actuary does, then how do you how do you get the actuarial folks cultivated into senior level actuaries if their job is basically being replaced? And I think that's more of the concern is, is how to properly train actuaries so that they can take advantage of ML and AI with, without um, eliminating the, all of the steps and, and the learning along the way to become real experts in the space. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting point, actually, that's not come up before when we've talked about, you know, MO and AI stuff, because, you know, we talk a lot about kind of getting rid of the mundane. And um, and I've always saw that as a massive positive because, you know, the bits that people get excited about at work is when you get to apply your knowledge and you ta- challenge yourself. So, you know, as an actor, with the more challenging parts of the role, um, you know, software development, even recruitment, you know, the, the stuff that we like to do is the stuff that's a bit more challenging. Um if you yeah if you remove that there's that how do you replace that because you know you 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 earn your stripes doing the kind of mundane stuff in most jobs you know most jobs it's kind of going through things it's the equivalent of the photocopying so you can kind of read it (laughs) as you go you know and 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 yeah it again speaks to kind of the way that we're culturally changing as well if you think about kind of remote working you know someone's already mentioned that to me that you don't have those kind of water cooler moments where you pick something up as well. So if you remove that kind of those kind of junior level roles, how do you, how do you replace that? I think that's, um, I think that's a fascinating challenge um, because yeah, we'll have a load of really good technology, which still needs to be applied by an expert, but we've got no training for the experts to do. So um, yeah, exactly. And it's a really, you know, I don't know what the right answer to this problem is, um, but it's something that we've thought about, uh, and I think it's something that will need to be addressed. So mm-hmm. I think tr- being able to tra- maybe train junior, uh, more junior resources on what these models are actually doing uh, is maybe now a separate, uh, a separate exercise than actually doing it themselves, right? Because now you have these really advanced models and technology that might be replacing sort of that manual labor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You've, got, you've really posed me a sort of ponder there. That, that's something that I'm sort of, yeah, I'm really, I'm really thinking about that now because I, you know, I'm, I'm selfishly thinking about my own industry and, and just how removed we've sort of being now. And, and there's a lot of stuff which is done online, but there's no getting away from the fact a lot of, a lot of recruitment is, you know, tackled on LinkedIn, for example. Um, but then, you know, the complaint is always that, oh, people don't know anything and they just keyword search and, you're like the reason I know stuff is because I was working before LinkedIn existed and I had to ask all the dumb questions. And, you know, I've, I've probably done my 10,000 hours worth of interviewing people that work in insurance. And, and that's what's built the kind of knowledge base to enable me to operate at a higher level. But how do I do that for people coming into the industry if everything is kind of done, you know, in a kind of AI driven way and, um, the computer sifting sort of uh, data for you. And um, yeah, and I think that's a problem we're going to see across the industry as we kind of embrace technology. Um, and, and I'm really conscious as well about people's enjoyment of work. I think that's, you know, something everyone likes to talk about. Oh, we have a fun work environment, but I don't know if we always think about creating jobs that are fun. 
Um, and one of the challenges, one of the benefits of AI and machine learning is you remove kind of mundane tasks. But um, yeah, I, I don't know how do you create experts outside of that environment. So yeah, that's the topic I'm going to have to have on a separate podcast. All <laughs> um, but uh, look, I'm conscious of your time as well. So um, yeah, it's been an exciting few weeks for you. Um, you know, look, looking to raise some more money. Look, fingers crossed, it appears to be appears to be done. Is it? Is that? Is it? it is, can we say it's done or are we saying it's nearly done, properly done? Um, by the time this podcast is released, it will definitely be done. Uh, sure. We have we have everything committed. We're just doing paperwork, basically. Yeah, no, fine. So what's the, what's the purpose of that? And what, what, what are you gonna, guys going to do with that investment? Where, where's that going? Yeah, absolutely. So the main focus of this investment is, is really so that we can move up market a little bit and focus more on enterprise level clients. Um, so there's a there's a few features we would like to add uh, to our platform that would really enable um, some of these larger enterprise clients that want specific features. If you think about like a lot of integrations and um, and things like that around you know single sign on and um, APIs and things like that, so that they can automate you know, their, their, uh, their workflows and not have to have human intervention in some aspects of their workflows. Uh, a lot of things like that, um, we're really focused on. And so we're, we're building up the development team, the product team, the quality assurance team, uh, and the actuarial support team all to, uh, to help with these larger clients, um, which, you know, we we're already, um, uh, landing these large clients. Uh, and we just felt like having the extra acceleration to help grow the team a little bit faster uh, would put us in a better position long-term uh, to really support these as we grow. So. Awesome. Exciting stuff and exciting time. And then, and are you, um, I, I didn't ask this at the outset, but um, uh, geographically, are you just focused pre- predominantly on North American market or is it international? What's the focus for you guys? Yeah, it's actually a great question. I guess I didn't mention that in the the other use of funds is uh, we are expanding internationally. We're, we are already an international company. Uh-huh. Uh, we have we have a couple of clients outside the U.S., um, but we are trying to expand as well. And um, we've built out a lot of capabilities around IFRS 17 and and those sorts of uh, regulatory uh, changes that are that are coming onto all these insurance companies' plates over the next few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, we're we're looking to target internationally as well. And and being a serv- uh, software as a service provider that really enables us to do that a, a lot more easily than than some of our competitors. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's that's a really good place to end on. We like we like we like positive endings. So we'll, I'll, I'll, probably, <laughs> I'll, I'll probably wrap it up there. But Taylor, thank you so much for spending the time with us. I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. As always, this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insure tech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I've been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly, um, either on LinkedIn or via my email, uh, alex at wearefinpro.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you.